So let's jump into it. I'm going to read from 1 Kings, if you want to go ahead and turn there to chapter 16. We are back with the story of Elijah here. And um, for those who kind of missed last week, I think everybody was here, but we really talked about this, this space between where we are and what's next. And in that moment, how that is so pivotal in who we are in Christ and how we walk out that next step. And oftentimes these, these moments are filled with sorrow. Um, they're filled with wilderness wandering. They're filled with not knowing what God has planned next. And usually in that moment, we have our own plans, don't we? We have our own plans. We have our ideas of what's going to happen. And we set up that expectation. We set up that hope. And then when that hope is not met or that expectation is not met, we feel great sorrow. And hopefully last week we walked away leaning on the fact that we don't have to know the answer to know that there is an answer. Amen? And so if you're with me in 1 Kings 16, let's stand together and read the word. This was starting in uh, verse 29. And I'm reading from the ESV. Um, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel. And I want to pause here. Jezebel means Satan's counterfeit or ridicule, as it were, of purity. Satan's counterfeit of purity. And this is who he takes on as his wife the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him and erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his day, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagum, Sagum, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now in chapter 17. Now, and if you read this in the Hebrew, it actually kind of colors this a little more than just the word now, but it says, and then this happened. Well, what is that? Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Now understand this. When he says this, the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives before whom I stand, in the Hebrew, this denotes that there's a relationship, that Elijah has a relationship with God. This isn't just Elijah coming in and says, well, God says this. No, the God that I know personally has told me to come reveal to you that there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just I thank you, God, that you have called me. You have marked my life, God, with ministry. You have marked it to be in your house consistently, before your presence, before the people, encouraging and, and championing them on to you and onward to your purposes. 
So today I just, I, I offer my, my humble self today. God, that you would take this cracked, broken vessel. You would somehow use it. You would somehow use this earthen clay pot for your glory. God, that you would do in me what I cannot do. You would speak what I cannot speak. You would be the words that I cannot give that would be life to everyone who hears. So I pray you'd anoint this time, anoint our ears, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this book of Kings, we don't know who authors, who's the author of Kings is, but if you notice that there's certain times he gives little detail, and then certain times he expands the detail. And so he spends very little bit of time telling us how evil the king is here. But he spends a great deal of time telling us how faithful the man of God is here. And I think that derives some importance to us. You see, the spiritual condition of Israel at this moment is that there is no public recognition of God. There is no open worship of God. In fact, what the king has done is he has instituted the worship of Baal. And we know in reading this text that not only have they instituted the worship of Baal, but they have killed the prophets of God. And the prophets that remain are hidden in a cave. And so in Israel we now see that there is no public recognition of God. And now on every side, Elijah is being insulted by Baalism. The wave of evil, evil as a cultural norm rises higher and higher until it sweeps everything into its flood. There is no knowledge of God. We read here at the end of chapter 16 that Ha'il, based on um, Ahab's orders, goes out and he rebuilds Jericho. Now, if you read back in, um, in, in the, Mo- the writings of Moses when Joshua leads the children of Israel in to the promised land, that, they, that the city of Jerusalem is sunk into, uh, Jericho, sorry, is sunk into the ground. And this is a monument and a testimony to who God is. And he begins to make a curse that if anybody comes to refortify this city, then what will happen is that they, it will come at the cost of their children. And so here is Ha'il comes to rebuild Jericho. And what we have happening in the nation of Israel is that there is an attempt to rewrite history. There's an attempt to write God out of their history. There's an attempt to remove the testimony of God. But you see, it cost him. It cost him his family. You know, there's a spiritual condition of American church right now. And I think it kind of parallels the condition of Israel. There's little public recognition of God nowadays. The gospel's polluted. Many people stand in the pulpit or in the public square and pollute the gospel. They make it about works. Right now we have a new doctrine that's entering the church And it's a new doctrine of works. The new works is that you have to vocally profess love. You don't have to live it. You just have to vocally profess it. We see there's a pollutant to the atonement of Jesus' blood. 
That it's no longer about the toning work of Jesus. It's no longer about the blood of Jesus. We make the gospel about you. We make the gospel about you being the hero of the story. That maybe now your feelings are the, gospel, the, the, the message of the gospel rather than the blood of Jesus. There's a pollution of the favor of God in that you should seek earthly treasures or that you could seek to be vindicated by who you are in God. The gospel is being polluted. There is a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They make it about falling out or about feeling goosebumps. And when the presence of God is there, they fake it or they make it up or they hype it up or they make it to this they may create this emotive moment that's set to move your emotions rather than captivate your spirit. They make it a convenience. How many people can we get in and out in an hour? They make it a show or a formula. We've come to a place in America where you're asked to constantly seek miracles. Now, there's nothing wrong with miracles, but we're not here to seek miracles. We're not here to seek the work of God. We're here to see the face of God. Amen. And in this book, we see as we read that when, and I talked about this last week, when Ahab goes back to Jezreel and he goes to Jezebel and he tells her the story, he doesn't tell her the story of what God has done. He blames the man of God for the wrecking of Baalism. I hope you're seeing the parallels between this, their time and our time today. You see, many Christian homes have no mention of God. Now notice I said Christian homes. Many Christian homes have no mention of God. In the same way Ahab goes home and he mentions nothing of God, many men will go home and mention nothing of God. They will, men they will mention nothing of the works of God or the hands of God or the gospel of Jesus or the things of God. This reflects their homes where they talk little about the works of God, but we talk about politics or football or we simply don't talk at all. You see, their worship of God is simply Sunday attire. But do you remember how chapter 17 starts off? And then this happened. You know, we live in a dark world. We do. But this isn't new. The world has been dark for centuries, spiritually dark speaking. We've been blessed as Americans to actually have the opportunity that very few believers have ever had, and that is to, be openly, to openly be able to express your faith and worship of God. Yet I think sometimes we take it for granted. Very few Christians throughout the history since Jesus were given that blessed opportunity. In fact, if you read through the books of martyrs, the books, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, the accounts are so thick that it can't contain it in one, in one printing. You see, yes, the world is evil. Yes, Satan is at work. But the good news is that if the gospel is to be good news, it has to invade bad spaces. Yes, 
Ahab was the worst. Yes, Baalism was taking over Israel. Yes, those things were happening. But chapter 17 starts off with this. And then this happened. What is it? This happened. The word of God came to the people. The word of God came to the people. It came in the form of Elijah, yes. But catch this. The word of God came to the people. God had not been silent. He was not silent. He was still working. And when evil seemed to mount its biggest test, when evil sent, sent, was sent to mount its biggest attack, one man stood in the way. And here we have Elijah. Elijah was activated by the word of God. Catch this. Whew. He openly de declared his devotion to God. When he comes to Ahab, he says, oh, this God that I know, he's telling me to come tell you this. The God, the living God of Israel. He was very jealous for the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord came to him, the Bible says. The word of the Lord came to him. He was activated by the word of God. Secondly, he lived for the glory of God. He knew God personally. He knew the law, the commandments of God. You know, the interesting thing about when he comes to Ahab, I'm going to read this to you out of Deuteronomy 11. This is what Moses wrote. This was right after God had given him the commandments. And this is what God told him to write down to the people. And he says, If you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived. Hang on. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off of the good land that the Lord has given you. You see, Elijah knew the word of God. And he knew that if they acted this way, that God would shut the heavens. And he comes and he declares the word of God. Not only was he activated by the word of God, he declared the word of God. Pastor John will say this a lot. He says, you know, the thing about being deceived is you don't know that you're being deceived. And the thing about being called to preach the gospel is you have to preach so that people will be, their heart will be quickened. And if they have been deceived, that their heart will come awake and realize the truth of the gospel. Church, there is a work in this nation to deceive you. There is a work in this nation to turn you away from God, to put your trust in other things, to put your trust in politics, to put your trust in doctors, to put your trust in your health, to put your trust in the things that you can amass. But the truth is the gospel lays it out plainly that we put our hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You see, he put the glory of God above his own considerations and his own interest. I'm sure he could have stayed in Gilead. He could have stayed in the hills. He could have stayed in the mountains with the people he knew, with the lifestyle he knew. He could have stayed there. 
and have been comfortable possibly. But when the word of God burns in you, you can't. When the bird, word of God becomes like fire in your bones, when the word of God sits heavy on you, you can't just sit there. And so he moves out and he goes and he, he throws aside his own considerations because as he goes before the king, he could be killed. As he goes before the king, he could face punishment. But he put those aside. Because the third thing, he's loved the people of God. He loved the people of God. He longed for their return to God. He fought for their return to God. This isn't something he did idly. So I asked us this morning, church, what's our spiritual condition? We've heard of the spiritual condition of our world. We've heard of the spiritual condition of the church at large. We've heard of the spiritual condition of Elijah. But church, what is your condition? What is my condition this morning? You see, Elijah stood for righteousness, stood righteous before God before he proclaimed righteousness to others. He stood righteous before God before he proclaimed righteousness to others. Now, I don't know how engaged you are in our current culture. Um, I have a very sarcastic sense of humor. I wish I had this sense of humor Pastor John has. He, you sit with him for a while. He can have you rolling with jokes. One, I just, they just come one after the other, and they just come. They're like a faucet. And after a while, you're like, I can't take it no more. My stomach hurts. I, <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I can't. I know. Everybody's like, poor Kelly, poor Kelly. <laughs> And you know why Izzy is, is like she is, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's all your fault. <laughs> so I have this sarcastic sense of humor. So I enjoy actually going on Twitter and engaging people. Because usually if I engage people with my sarcastic sense of humor, I lose friends. And <laughs> they don't quite get me. So I understand that. <laughs> so I got tired of losing friends. So I had to get that out. So I just I go out there and I, and I say these things. <clears throat> But I see a lot of people who are trying to declare a form of righteousness who lack righteousness. Yep. A people who tell you to be moral but lack morality. A people who try to tell you what's right but they stand on nothing. Yep. I mean, you don't have to go far to see this, do you? You don't have to go far to notice that these people are selling empty vessels it's like the emperor's new clothes they're selling you nakedness telling you you're clothed you see he stood for righteousness before god before he proclaimed righteousness to others church if we are going to be spiritually strong if we're going to stand in these last days then we're going to have to stand in the righteousness of god amen The second thing is he was confident in the Lord. Now I hope this morning you're standing righteous in the righteousness of God. It's not your righteousness that we stand in. It's not your goodness that we stand in. It's not my ideas that I stand in. It's the word of God and his righteousness. And there's a confidence that comes from that. There's a confidence that rests in that. There's a confidence that we gain when we have walked with Jesus through thick and thin. Amen? 
There's a confidence in which we hold when we have met face to face with God. You see, he was conscious that the king of the angel armies was with him and thus boldly confronts the wicked Ahab. You see, because he knew his words weren't weak. He knew his words were not without power. He knew, based on Deuteronomy 11, that if he stood before the king and declared this, that God would be faithful to his word and enact it. He knew the word of God, and he could stand confident in it. Could it be that we lack courage because we lack a proper vision of God? Could it be that we lack courage because we lack a proper vision of God? Is he the Lord Almighty who sits between the cherubims and judges the hearts of man? You see, Israel was to constantly have this reminder of who God is. And it came in the form of a golden casket, a golden box. And in that box was a reminder of God's faithfulness. There was Aaron's sword and there was manna. The only manna that they were allowed to save was in there. And it was said that God would sit between the cherubims on this ark. He would sit there and he would judge the hearts of men. And if the priest walked in there unpure, if the priest walked in slightly defiled, if the priest walked in with the slightest bit of unrighteousness, then he was dead. Ephesians 1, Paul writes this to us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Jesus Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Man, I can't tell you when I look over this world and I look over the church, I see a darkness that seems to be prevailing. But you know what I'm constantly reminded of? Church, he has his remnant. Church, he has his people that will never bow their knee. He has his people that will never turn their back. He has his people that will stand confident in who he is. Are we those people? You see, he stood for righteousness. He was confident in the Lord, and he was consumed by the glory of God. Then there's this um, scripture text, Daniel 11.35. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's one of those that's kind of always haunted me. I don't know if, if you have a scripture, scripture like that. It's not my favorite one, but it's probably one of those I remember the most. And I'm constantly thinking about this text. And it says, they that know the Lord will be strong. The, uh, one version says they will do great exploits. 
And I've always wrestled with this because growing up, I felt like there was this need for me to perform for God, or there was this need for me to have this outcome for God, that the things I did for God should be awesome. They should explode. They should be magnificent. There should be miracles happening all the time. It, it was as if that every time you prayed, there should be a miracle happening. And the problem was, as I lived out my life, these two didn't match up. I would spend days and weeks fasting, and it would seem like God was silent. I would pray my heart out, and it would seem like God was not there. But then there was this verse that kept going in the back of my head, but they that know their God shall be strong. Say, well, I guess I don't know God. And so I would try to know God deeper and I would try to read his Bible more and I would try to pray more. And it didn't result in more of God and the things that I thought it would be. And this was a constant wrestle for me. And so I had to deep, dig down deep into this scripture and say, God, what are you saying in this? What are you trying to reveal in this? You see, how was it that the men of old were able to stand as they did? What was their source of strength? What made Moses, Moses boldly proclaim to Pharaoh, let my people go? What enabled David to pursue Goliath? What was the source of Stephen's great sermon? Possibly the greatest sermon in the Bible. What emboldened Paul against Agrippa? You see, a supernatural strength only comes from a supernatural source. Elijah was consumed with God. He was consumed with the things of God. He was consumed with the purposes of God. He was so consumed that he put everything else in life on hold and to the side to pursue God. You see, God is a consuming fire. The Bible tells us that Jesus was consumed with zeal for the house of God or for the presence of God. They that know their God shall be strong. You see, in the garden, we have this story where the earth was empty and God plants this garden. And in the middle of this garden, he plants this tree. And of this tree, he tells them, don't to eat, do not eat. And many people would say, oh, how cruel is it that God would put this tree in the middle of their living room and tell them not to eat of it? And many people have, made that, have foolishly made that argument. They have foolishly asked, why would God do that? I mean, why would God tell them they couldn't eat and then put this in front of them? What a horrible temptation. You see, this tree wasn't a temptation. This tree wasn't about how, what God was holding because the enemy came to Eve and he said, oh, why would God tell you that? Is it God withholding from you? You see, this wasn't God withholding. This was God revealing the tree wasn't about what God was holding. The tree was about what God was showing them. And in front of them, he put a display of his, of his gospel, of the truth. You see, knowledge is not about what we consume. It's about what consumes us. Knowledge is not about what choices we make. Knowledge is about the one who's chosen us. You see, because in the garden there were two things. There was a tree that they were not supposed to eat of. And then there was the creator of life. What 
One revealed knowledge. One was the revelation of knowledge. And every day, God would walk through the garden and reveal himself to Adam. He would walk through the garden and become intimate with Adam. He would walk through the garden and begin to share himself with Adam. And the fourth thing is he displayed the power of God. You know, the power of God is not in yelling. It's not in people being pushed over. It's not in gold dust coming out of air-conditioned vents. It's not a display of might. In my years in church, I've been to a lot of, can we just say crazy church services? In my quest for God, I went to places where people yelled loudly telling me God was there. And it seemed like the louder people yelled, the less of God seemed to be in the room. See, in Leviticus, we have a story of the sons of Aaron who brought false fire before God. You see, God, the display of God's power is not in the earthly things. It's not in the display of miracles or the display of actions in an altar. It's not in these things that we would, that a lot of the church typically marks as the power of God. The power of God, according to the Bible, is for salvation. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is the power of the gospel? Jesus Christ. It is his life on the cross. It was his life of purity. It was his work on the cross. You see, many people try to paint it as other things, but church, today, what power are we standing in? What power do we hold? Do we hold the power of the gospel or do we hold the power of a dancing around. You know, that's not to say that sometimes these things are true. But if that's what preachers are asking you to seek after, then I think they're asking you to seek after the wrong thing. Because what we seek after is not a display of God. What we seek after is the face of God. How are people led to salvation? It's not through great displays of power, but it's in the still small voice of God that invades the soul of man. In the early 1900s, there was, it was labeled the Great Awakening that came through America. It swept through. Many people, you've probably read about it. One of the greatest preachers known during that time was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And it was interesting, this man probably preached more sermons than anybody else. I don't know if there's any more, anybody else who's probably preached more sermons. This guy preached and preached and preached. Maybe Spurgeon, maybe there's a couple other who've preached that many times. Who, who knows? I haven't counted, but I know he's preached a lot of sermons. For weeks on end, he would preach one sermon after the next. He would preach and preach and preach. And he saw God sweep through the colonies and the states early on, and he would see a great move of God. And there was displays of God. There were miracles that were happening. There was all these things that were happening. But you know what he wrote at the end of that? He wrote that revival was possibly the worst thing for the church. How could he write that? I mean, he experienced it. What he said was that before the revival, the church knew their enemy and they fought with the enemy. 
But it was during revival that the enemy became the church's friend and led her astray. Because people began to seek after signs and miracles and falling out and feeling good and warm emotions, and they stopped pursuing, they stopped leaning on the face of God, leaning on the hands of God. You see, the power of God is not only the power to be saved, but it's the power to stand. Ephesians 6 tells us this, and when you have done all that you can do, stand. When you've done all you can do, stand. Stand strong in the Lord. Be able to stand. Having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore. One time after the next. What does he say? He says, stand. This is what we, when we read Ephesians 6 here, he's talking about the armor of God. And people want to focus on the armor of God and put on the armor of God. Yes, we put on the armor of God. But the power of God is the ability to stand in the face of the enemy. The power of God is to be able to stand in the faithfulness of God when everybody else has fallen away. The power of God is to be able to look at Baal and go, no, I will not bow down. The power of God is when the music plays and everybody else bows down, you stand there in full, full face looking at Nebuchadnezzar going, I will not bow my knee to you. I bow my knee only to God. That is the power to stand. That is the power, the evidence of God. And church, if this is the last days, if we are experiencing the last days, then we will enter these moments and you will have to stand. You will not need the power of God to fall out. You will need the power of God to stand. You will not need the power of God to feel good. You will need the power of God to remain. In Revelations, over and over again, it tells us that to those who endure shall receive the crown of life. Those who endure, those who can stand till the end, those who remain strong, those who know their God and are strong. You see, as we read through the book of Kings here, we see that there was a famine in the land. And Elijah comes and he tells Ahab, that there will be a famine, and it will not rain until I declare it's going to rain again. And the Bible tells us that the word of God then comes to Elijah again and says, it's time to go. Get out of here. You see, the Hebrew word for this means it's time to withdraw. This isn't Elijah hiding in fear. This is the judgment of God. You see, God's judgment wasn't that you wouldn't be able to eat. God's judgment is that he would remove his testimony from the land. The judgment wasn't just that they wouldn't be able to grow crops. The judgment was the word of God would not grow in their hearts. Deuteronomy 32, this is the song of Moses, and it says, Give, O ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teachings drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew. Let gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. You see, the famine in the land wasn't about the food. Yes, that was the physical evidence, 
But the greater judgment of God is that his testimony had been pulled back. And this is what Paul reveals to us in the book of Romans about people being turned over to their own evil ways. They're being turned over to their own decrepancy. We're seeing that in our culture right now. We're seeing an evil that you can't explain. We're seeing people say things that aren't even rational. When you tell me that an eight-year-old can now change into a, a boy can change into a girl, that's irrational. That's irrational, folks. You, you can't even argue with that. There's no argument against that because it's irrational. It's like, where do you start? You're way past the line at this point. We're told that little girls should be able to do on TV things that adults shouldn't do. And we're told that's okay. Folks, this isn't even rational, is it? But the word for us is, will we be able to stand? Because the time is wicked. And the time is now to stand, is it not, church? The time is evil. And then this happened. Think about your own story. When you were lost in evil, when you were dead in your sin. You could write that in your own story. Oh, I was dead. I was lost. I was lost. I was far from God. I was dead inside. And then this happened. What? Oh, Jesus showed up. The Word of God came to me, and it became like fire inside of me, and it lit my soul, and I became alive. It could be said of this, in America, everything was falling apart. Everything was dismal. And then this happened. And then what? My prayer is to be, and then the what would be, and then the church rose up and she took her place. You see, our place is not in the political, in the political structure. Our place is not in politics. Although, yes, we're involved in politics, but that is not where we wage our war. Our war will be waged on our knees. It will be waged in our worship. It will be waged in our reading of the word, our studying of scriptures, and our proclaiming the gospel. I hear a lot of people praying that we need revival. Can I ask you this? Instead of revival, would you pray that God would send preachers? I mean, I'm all for revival, but we ain't going to have revival without preachers. How will they know? How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they pre preach unless he has been sent? Church, we need to pray for preachers. Because there's a lot of preachers right now who are not preaching the gospel. There's a lot of churches this morning where the gospel of Jesus, the atoning blood of Jesus, will not be proclaimed. Can we pray for preachers? What about our house? When was the last time you prayed for preachers to come out of our house? I'm going to tell you, one of my favorite things right now is being a preacher under Pastor John. I love this. We have two that have been sent off to, they're, they're out, off at Bible school right now. They're learning how to become preachers. Would you pray for them? We have another young man who's studying to become a preacher. 
Would you pray for him? Who else in this house has God burdened to be a preacher? Because I can't think of a better church for preachers to come out of, Pastor John. Why not, right? What, 11 churches now? How many of your staff members have run off and <laughs> planted churches? <laughs> Why? That's hard when you're sitting under a good pastor and you have this call to preach. It's, it's hard to not preach and want to be doing that. Like, yeah, you feel it. You ec it echoes in your bones. It echoes in who you are. And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we, church, can we pray for preachers? Would you do that with me? Would you join me in praying for preachers? I mean, we got a little guy. He's what, four, five? Elijah? Six, Six now. Man, it's happening fast. <laughs> and I love how our pastor just keeps proclaiming, preacher man, little preacher man, little preacher man, little preacher man. You know why? Because our world needs preachers. We need preachers in elementary school. We need preachers in middle school. We need preachers in high school. We need preachers in college. We need preachers. We need people full of the knowledge of God. We need people who are on fire for God, who have been consumed by the power of God to preach the word of God because we need dead ears to open. We need dead hearts to come alive because there's no politician that's going to turn this nation. Church, if we don't have preachers, they're gonna, this nation is going to die. We need preachers. We need men of God who are on fire for God, who will get on their knees daily, who will stick their nose in this word and turn off the TV to hear a word from God. You see, it's amazing when we make that first step in faith, how the rest of it just begins to unfold. How that when we take that step of faith, we become the answer to a prayer. Church, there are people out there praying for hope. They're praying for a rescue. They're praying for you to enter their life. And it's amazing when we begin to give out of our absence, and God gives us the rest, doesn't He? Like the widow who with Elijah who says, Well, I don't have much, but you can have it. And she gives it away, and what happens? She doesn't go without. Because she didn't give it just to give it or because culture told her to. She, get it, she gave it because God said, I'm going to put it on this widow's heart. I'm going to command her, and she's going to do this, and I'm going to give it back to her. You see, our movement's got to come from the gospel. It's got to come from the Father. Our love has to come from the Father. Isaiah 40, 29 says this, He gives power to the faint, and to those that have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord, or, and this, then this happened. And then this happened. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But where had Elijah learned this all-important lesson? It wasn't in seminary. It wasn't in a Bible training course or college. 
You see, because there's no one that can impart these secrets. There's no man of God who can teach you himself these lessons. But it's rather here in the backside of the desert that the Lord appeared and commanded Moses. It's in the wilderness of the soul where Joseph leaned. He leaned in. And in the lonesome field where David grew in stature, so it was in the solitude of Gilead that Elijah had communed with Jehovah and he had been trained by him for his great journey. There he had waited upon the Lord and there he had obtained strength for the task. You see, what lies ahead of us, church, is greater than us. It's greater than what we can do. It's greater than who we are. The need in your neighbor, the need of your neighbor is greater than you can supply. The need of our culture is greater than we can obtain. But that's not bad news. You know why? Because he is greater. Because when we step forth in Christ, we have the full weight of heaven behind us. Amen. So today I ask us, church, what is our spiritual condition? Do we look like Israel or do we look like Elijah? Do we look like the people who chase after Baal or do we look like the people who are consumed by God? 